This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. This is part three of my interview with Rachel. If you haven't already listened to parts one and two, I recommend that you go back and listen to those before you listen to part three. I'm going to hand over to Rachel. Um, so during our pregnancy with Hugo, uh, we had an overwhelming amount of support from the community just for our team, you know, when things were going well. So when things started going less well, um, just the amount of love that we received from the online groups was just almost overwhelming, you know. Um, it really, you know, people talk about how it's like a, a it's a, it's a, like a village, you know. It essentially is like a village when it does, and it does take a village to raise a child. And this was like the epitome of that saying because um, when he, when we found out Hugo wasn't going to live, the amount of people that were affected by our news was incredible, and the amount of support we got was overwhelming. And it we didn't need anything physical to show the support it was just the messages and you know the texts that we received that really helped us get through that time and um after he passed away um it was definitely i think we lived in a little bubble for a while um the the four of us so my husband and i and marion and david we definitely lived in this little grief bubble where we didn't want to let anyone in, um, but the people that we did let in definitely helped us through that time, and it was a lot of people in the surrogacy community, um, uh, way too many to even name, but, you know, having knowing that they were hurting for us definitely helped and that at the drop of the hat, any number of them would have just been there for us if we needed them. And this is why I always say to sur potential surrogates who I meet offline that if you're going to do surrogacy, it definitely pays to have support, whether it's online or whether it's in person or, you know, even if it's just a friend, a group of friends that you can talk to about things that are happening because of, it would have been so much harder to go through all that if it was just us on our own. I don't know how anybody who's going through the grief of losing a loved one or a child and locks themselves away because it's just not healthy to do that. You need someone that you can talk to, someone that might not fully understand but can certainly empathise about what you're going through and just having an ear to, to talk to and to listen and to get it and just to say, yeah, that's really fucking shit, you know, what happened for you because it's just small things like that that really help. Um, so in the next couple, I ended up taking about four months off of work after I'd had Hugo um, and it was definitely needed. I think I needed that time before going back to a very busy birth suite um, where I quite often came across, um, um, you know, stillbirths and that sort of thing. Um, it obviously was, I obviously knew it was going to hit very close to home when I came across my first, um, negative outcome for a birth with, with a woman. Um, so I, I took as much time as I could to recover emotionally before I went back to work. 
when I did go back to work, I really threw myself back into it. Um, it took me a little while to get the level of compassion for other people back. Um, I definitely at that point was going through a bit of compassion fatigue. Um, you know, you listen to women complain about every little tiny thing that's going on in their life. And I, I, all I could think was, well, I just had a baby that died. You know, you have no idea how hard it can be. And I had a little bit of resentment there for a while. So that was um, something unexpected that I experienced when I went back to work. Um, so, and it was something that I actually identified, which was probably a good thing because then I could work on it. And that, and during that time, that's what exactly what I did. I focused on, gaining back that compassion for other people. And I did withdraw a lot from the online community at that point. I just um, felt like I needed to focus on myself and my relationship with my husband and my kids. And, uh, you know, it was definitely a little bit of self-care there. Um, the relationship with Marion and David was stronger than ever. We still texted daily. We always checked in to see how we were going. Um, even if it was just, uh, hey, how was your day text? You know, they were, we were both, it was, and it was from both sides. I would check on them. They would check on me. Um, and if ever a surrogacy is going to go wrong, it would definitely be in that moment where, you know, that, that, that traumatic moment where, you, you know, you've had a baby and it's not survived and maybe you can't deal with, with another couple at that point, but they never, ever secluded me from their grief and I never secluded them from my grief because it was a moment that we experienced together. And I think because we went through it together, that's why we came out of it so strong because nobody knew what we were going through more than each other because we had lived it together. And I don't think it's something that I could have gone through on my own at all. So having them in that time and seeing how our relationship sort of progressed from there um, was incredible. And, I mean, I'm just so grateful to have them because... Um, they could have easily had said, this is too much. We just can't deal with what you're going through at the moment. But they never once resented me for my pain and I never once resented them for their pain. And if we needed a day where we didn't talk much or, or just wanted to forget the world, then that was okay. And they were okay with that and I was okay with that. And, um, you know, we just became even a stronger team because of what we had survived from what we'd gone through. And when I was pregnant with Hugo, I had said to Simon, you know, I think I could do a sibling for them. And he said, absolutely not. Don't even think about it. Don't even talk to me about it. Don't bring it up again. I don't want to know about it. And then it was about two weeks after we found out that Hugo wasn't going to live when I was still pregnant and Simon, we were just sitting at the table and Simon turned to me and he said, you know, if you wanted to do it again for Marion and David, I would completely understand. Just, just, you know, just take your time to recover and then if you decide you want to do it again, I'll support you. And that just came out of the blue and it had definitely been something I had been thinking about um, in that sort of 
those those weeks of the complete completely not knowing what to expect in the future all I could think was I set out to make them parents and yes I'm making them parents but this isn't what I was setting out actually to achieve you know my dream in my head was that they were going to have this amazing moment of becoming parents and then go home and take their baby home and suffer through everything that new parents suffer through and they weren't getting that moment and it was something that I really wanted to give them still. So um, the fact that Simon knew that I'd been thinking about it, I guess, is um, shows exactly how he knows how I think um, and the fact that he had brought it up himself and said that he would support me just made me love him so much more um, and appreciate him so much more, appreciate having him in my life. I mean, I definitely wouldn't have survived through Hugo if I didn't have Simon. He was my number one support. Um, so it was Hugo's first birthday. We decided that we were going to fly to South Australia and spend it together. Um, you know, it was a happy and a sad moment. Um, and actually when he was six months old, uh, we finally got back the genetic testing on Hugo that they had done. Um, and it turned out that he had had a condition called nemaline myopathy, which is an, a rare form of muscular dystrophy. And quite often, nemaline myopathy is not a, um, you know, it's, it's not, a, not something that affects people very much. It's something that people tend to be born with, but then only develop symptoms later in life, which are usually just a little bit of muscle weakness. Um, but the congenital form where the baby's born with it is always fatal. So, um, and it's extremely rare. Uh, usually both parents have to be carriers um, for this condition to occur. But when they did testing on Marion and David, they found out that neither of them were carriers. So it was a completely spontaneous freak of nature that he ended up with this condition. Um, and there was essentially no way to test the embryos um, that they still had in storage for his condition. Even though they knew what to test for, they actually need... Um, an original cell to test it against it and it has to come from one of the parents and and because neither of them were carriers it was not something that we could we had the ability to test for um so we were told that we could use the leftover embryos and we were given the option of doing uh cvs testing at 11 weeks which is quite an invasive test where they take a small piece of placenta and um, they compare it to some stored tissue of uh, muscle tissue of Hugo's. So for a, a good six months there, we were kind of in limbo about, yes, we all knew that we wanted to go again, but we didn't know if we'd be able to use the leftover embryos or if maybe the sperm was an issue or maybe the eggs were an issue. Um, you know, it, it, it was... Um, we were definitely in limbo for a while there and we all knew that we wanted to wait for the results from Hugo's um, testing before we made any decisions to go ahead. And I definitely needed the time to recover from the cesarean and my doctor was very stern with me. You wait at least one year before you go ahead. Um, so we went down for Hugo's first birthday. Um, we had the results by then and we, would, we decided 
to, to make the next step and, and actually try cycling again. And it was, uh, it was at times a very easy decision to cycle again. And at other times it, it was not such an easy decision because neither of us wanted, wanted to feel like we were doing it to replace Hugo or to, or to get something that they didn't get from him. Um, and knowing that, and I think Marion struggled the most here and knowing that she was emotionally ready for her was quite difficult. And one day she would say, I don't want to cycle again. I don't want to do it again. And then another day she'd be like, yep, let's go tomorrow. Um, so it definitely took a little bit of time to let Marion sort of come to the decision that she was okay to, to try again. And obviously you're going to have some fear going into your next pregnancy when something like this has happened. We were told it was, you'd have more chance of being hit struck by lightning than you would of having a baby with Hugo's condition when neither parents are carriers. So when the worst has happened, it's hard to put yourself out there again. And I think Marion struggled a lot with that. Um, I was keen to get going because I knew finally for sure this was going to be my last pregnancy and I was keen to to sort of get it underway to know you know I'm getting closer to 40 I sort of wanted to get my life sorted um and having this pregnancy out of the way would give me time to focus on my family and what I want to do for the rest of my life so I was quite keen to go ahead David was extremely keen you know he'd had a a brief glimpse into what it was like to be a father and he really wanted to go through that again um, with a better outcome this time. Um, but it took about three months for Marion to finally decide that she was okay with cycling again. So we made the decision um, and it ended up being we cycled the month after Hugo's first birthday and from the get-go in this pregnancy, I knew everything was going to be okay. I just had a feeling that everything was going to go smoothly, the baby was going to be born healthy, and we would have no hiccups. And we got pregnant the first cycle, which I was totally shocked about because aging 40, they always tell you, could take a few months. Um, so I got pregnant first cycle. Everything went swimmingly. I had hardly had any morning sickness. I had lots of energy through the pregnancy. Um, I was coping with work a lot better. And it helped that I worked in a hospital and I could scan myself every now and again <laughs> um, and know that the baby was in there. And um, at when I was about eight weeks pregnant, I did a sneaky scan while I was at work and the baby did a flip and I happened to be recording it at the time and I sent it to Marion and David and they were so over the moon because the baby was moving. <laughs> so this was sort of our first sign that, hey, the baby's already doing something that Hugo never did. Um, so we decided that we would do the CVS testing anyway at 11 weeks just for peace of mind. Um, and it's quite an, as I said, an invasive procedure. It's a lot like the amnio drainages, but this time they actually go into the placenta and they take some of the placenta out and they test it. And it does carry a, a higher risk of miscarriage. Um, so there was, there was also that to think about. 
And unfortunately, um, poor planning saw that the CVS testing fell while Marion and David were out of the country um, in Sweden, which is where David's from. Um, and Marion and David struggled quite a bit about allowing me to go to do to the testing on my own or with Simon. They really wanted to be there in the event that something went wrong. Uh, we all had some reservations about CVS testing and the chance of a miscarriage. You know, you don't want to decide to do the testing and then miscarry and then find out that the baby was perfectly healthy. Um, but then again, I didn't want to run the risk of not getting the testing and then later on in the pregnancy finding out that something was wrong with the baby. So um, it took a lot of... Um, a lot of conversations with Marion and David to reassure them that I was going to be okay. And they finally agreed to not being there for the testing because they were planning on cancelling their trip or, or moving the dates of their trip. Um, so they finally agreed to not being there for the testing as long as Simon was there and they were able to FaceTime in. So I think they got up at like at 3am or something in Sweden and FaceTimed in for the appointment, which was lovely because they were still there, even though... There was essentially nothing they could do. They were just watching a big needle go into my belly, but it was so great to have their support um, through that appointment. And, that, of course, they were constantly checking in on me um, afterwards as well, and it all went smoothly. The initial testing came back two weeks later, and in that testing uh, we found out that she didn't have Down syndrome. It was essentially just the basic screen for aneuploidy and... Um, trisomies, which we'd essentially already had with the PGS testing. Uh, that came back fine um, and I found out at that time that we were it was going to be a girl and um, I was going to keep that news to myself until we had a gender reveal at 20 weeks. But the actual testing on the gene, um, gene um, problem that Hugo had took another three weeks and even though I had this overwhelming feeling that everything was going to be okay and the baby was healthy and I could see it was moving on ultrasound and by 14 weeks I was feeling it move um, I was still getting nervous towards the end when the results still hadn't come back when I was nearly 16 weeks pregnant so it took five weeks all up for for the genetic test to come back and it came back negative so just an extra reassurance that everything was okay and of course we were all over the moon that everything was okay and I, I had kept the pregnancy to myself up until that point um I, we'd kept it from the community we'd kept it from everyone essentially in our, our families and everything else just as a way to sort of protect ourselves and and it was also nice just to have it to ourselves for that amount of time um you know, you, you cherish so much more when you've been through so much heartache. You cherish those little things of living in your little happy bubble for a little while, a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, we had a gender reveal at 20 weeks, which was amazing. Um, all the ultrasounds were good. Um, no complaints at all through the pregnancy. Towards the end of the pregnancy, my blood pressure started playing up a little bit. I have pre-existing hypertension, so... Um, uh, it just started playing up a bit more and because I was a little bit older, the doctors were getting a bit nervous about preeclampsia. 
Um, and the decision was to deliver her at 37 weeks and six days. So um, obviously there's always a little bit of a risk when you deliver a baby by planned cesarean section before 38, 39 weeks um, when it comes to lung development and, and um, babies being able to maintain their sugar levels. So we were told that it's possible that she might need to spend a night in the nursery um, if she has some breathing difficulties and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I was hoping for the best, that she would just be born and she'd go to Marion and David and everything would be well. Um, so cesarean came around, was absolutely so emotional, far more emotional than I ever expected when they and funnily enough, um, one of the doctors who was doing the cesarean was, is actually, has actually been a surrogate herself. So it was so lovely to have her involved with that day. Um, you know, it's not every day that your doctor <laughs> um, that's doing a cesarean section has also been through exactly what you've been through. So it was lovely to have Maggie a part of that. You know, the, they, they said, all right, baby's coming now. And I could feel them pushing down to get her out. And then they lifted her and she let out this huge scream that just overtook the entire theatre. And everyone was laughing and I was crying and Marion and David were crying and the midwife was crying because they all knew our history and had all been with us through everything else. And I even made the anesthetist cry because <laughs> I was so emotional. And it was just so amazing. And, I'm, you know, and we never went through all that to make up for what we didn't get with Hugo, but it certainly made up for so much that we missed out on with Hugo. Just having that moment where he's your baby and she's screaming and she's healthy and everything's going, you know, going well. And it was just such a lovely moment and it's one that I'll never, ever forget. And um, everything was perfect with her. They wrapped her up and they gave her to Marion. They took them out to recovery and Marion was able to have skin to skin with her and breastfeed her. And everything was just, you know, all roses, which was just lovely. Um, by the time I got to recovery, um, the baby, she, Matilda, her name is, she was getting a little bit sweaty. So we were a bit concerned about what her blood sugar level was doing. And it turned out it was low. So she had to go to the nursery. And then for the next couple of days, for the next sort of few hours, she was really having trouble waking up to feed. So we'll, um, Marion was getting quite concerned about her. And I guess for Marion and David, all they had ever known was that they had had this baby that lived its life in the nursery and, and, and then passed away. So... I think there was a whole lot of anxiety in those those sort of first 48 hours where she wasn't waking to feed and she wasn't doing the things that newborn babies usually do. And I was trying to reassure them, oh, well, she is a little bit early. You know, most of my babies go overdue, so she's quite early in terms of my pregnancies. And some babies just take a little bit of time to realise that, you know, you're born, you, you, here you are. Um, you need to do things now like feed and, and wake up and um, it just took her a little bit longer so Marion was quite anxious at that point to the point where one on the second night where she was still in the nursery and not really waking up to feed Marion was like this is it she's not gonna she's not gonna live like we've lost one baby and we're gonna lose another and I can 
as ridiculous as that sound, I sounds, I can completely understand how she jumped to that conclusion because they had been through the worst already. So when Matilda finally actually woke up and had a great feed, it was just like a defining moment for them where they went, oh my God, she's going to live. You know, we're going to get to take this one home. So um, that was really great. (laughs) Um, So due to her being in the nursery for two nights and I had had a ridiculous amount of complications um, with postpartum hemorrhages and things like that after Matilda's birth, um, we ended up spending an, an, an extra night in hospital, which, was, which worked out well because it was their first night where they actually got to have her in the room with them and their room was beside my room, so we were close and, you know, we got to experience that sort of thing together, which was lovely. And then for the next four weeks... Uh, they stayed here in Queensland with Matilda not far away. I was expressing expressing for them and Marion was also feeding her as well, breastfeeding her, so she was just supplementing with my milk. And it was everything that we wanted the first time and we finally got it the second time. And it was, it, everything was worth it. Everything that we'd gone through with Hugo and the hard pregnancies and all the grief of the last three years just all led to this moment and left me feeling so fulfilled because we'd we'd moved heaven and earth essentially to have this baby and and here she was and they were finally parents the parents that they deserved to be because they missed out on being this these this type of parents to Hugo so um and they just flourished as parents which was a little bit disappointing for me because I wanted them to struggle a bit more but (laughs) they did so well as parents and uh, yeah and I know my heart is so full because they're the best parents and I help them become parents and you know and it was everything was just worth it i I, I can't sum it up anything more than that, you know. Everything, all the shit that we went through, all the heartache, the pain, the, you know, the dark nights where you'd wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning and you just couldn't stop crying. It was all just worth it because here she is. Here's Matilda and went through hell to get her here and here she is. So um, when they left um, two weeks ago, it was just sort of like, it wasn't even like, it never ever felt like the end. It never felt like the end, you know, finally finished my surrogacy journeys. This is it. Off they go home. I'm done. It just feels like this is just the next part of the journey. You know, they're finally parents that they should be. They've got their child. They're taking it home. And now I can sit back and I guess we could say enjoy the fruit of my loins. <laughs> you know, watch, watch, watch them grow and watch all, all these parents that I've helped create, you know, have these amazing moments with their children and watch them grow up and flourish in the world. And, and that was something that not just I made, but my whole family put into it. So... And it kind of really sums it up when uh, we were saying goodbye at the airport to Marin and David and she's like, oh, you know, and we just had something that we wanted to ask before we go. 
and she turned to my daughter, Kiara, and she said, Kiara, we were wondering if you would be Matilda's godmother. Mm. And she was like, oh, yeah, okay. And then she said, and Brittany, we were wondering if you would be Matilda's godmother as well. And Brittany's like, yeah, of course. And then they're like, and we want Addie to be her godmother as well. And Rachel, you can be a godmother. And Simon, you can be her godfather. Because then she has a god family. And it was just so lovely. And it really does sum up that, you, you know, you don't always get to choose your family in life. But I feel like this is a way that I've been able to choose my family. And they're, it's, they're completely filled with people that I love and adore and would, would not be able to picture my life without. So, um, so everything that I've been through in the last 10, 12, 13 years has absolutely been worth it. And I don't think I have much else to say. <laughs> I think you've, you've done exactly what I needed you to do. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's okay. Beautiful and amazing. Um, I was going to say, do you have any tips for anyone? But I feel like your whole story is so helpful for people going forward. Uh, my advice to people, um, as I said, you know, I always advise people to have support around them. Um, because it's not something that you should have to go through on your own. It's quite a monumental thing going down the surrogacy route. Um, and it's hard, hard doing it when you've got support. When you don't have support, it's almost impossible. Um, you know, be sure about what you want, um, but don't be a dick about it. Uh, you know, you're, it's not just you in this journey. It's, it's as, either as a surrogate or an intended parent, you've got, you've got other parties involved and you can't just be always thinking about what you want. So don't be a dick and appreciate each other and, um, and make your, your team and your relationship a two-way street. That's pretty much all, this, all, the, all that I can recommend that people do. That was the conclusion of my interview with Rachel. I wanted to express my thanks and my gratitude to Rachel for sharing her surrogacy story, which spans over 10 years, and particularly for sharing the story of the pregnancy and birth with Hugo and then the pregnancy and birth with Matilda. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Instagram, on Facebook, and at sarahjefford.com. You may also like to leave a review at Apple Podcasts.